Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vincent Emanuele, and we are joined by Helmut Walser-Smith, who is the Martha, Martha Rivers Ingram Chair of History and Professor of German Studies at Vanderbilt University. He is the author of numerous books, including German Nationalism and Religious Conflict, 1870 to 1914, The Butcher's Tale, Murder and Anti-Semitism in a German Town, and the editor of multiple other works. Thanks for joining us today, Helmut. Nice to be here. Thank you. We specifically asked Helmut to join us today because of an article I came across in the Washington Post entitled, No, America is not succumbing to fascism. The resistance is proof of that. And I thought it would be interesting to have this conversation with Helmut. As many people know on the program, we've spoken with activists, organizers, scholars, historians from all over the world um, about the Trump administration, about what's happening in this time, uh, both in the United States and around the world. And I actually found your article, Helmut, to be one of the more uplifting, uh, though also, you know, sort of sobering articles um, that I read about this uh, particular topic so far. So let's start by, I wanted to ask you sort of what are some of the key elements and dynamics uh, of Nazi rule in the first year after, in the first years after they took power? Well, what I outline in the, in the Washington Post essay is that there are essentially three. Um, And one is, I mean, aside from the simple business of taking over the centers of power. Aside from that, there's the very important shift, which we call in German Gleichschaltung, which means to bring all of society into the same gear. That is to say, co-opt all of society. So, so all the institutions that we rely on, your radio show, my university, um, journalists and all of that, they too were on board. And that's something that's obviously very different here. Uh, a second is um, is just sheer coercion. Um, that is to say, the Nazis very, very quickly put up um, a system of uh, arresting people, of sending people to concentration camps, and the numbers were not small. They're quite large. And so that element of coercion is also very different. I'm not saying that there aren't moments when the state, uh, the Trump administration acts like a police state, but it's not that kind of police state. And the, the third, and this is, the, I don't want to call it more abstract, but, but this is the more um, complex one, let's put it that way. And that is the relationship between, um, well, that, that is about the persecution of minorities. And what I argue is that it works very different. Here in this country, there is some of that. There's targeting of minorities. I'm very aware of that. But there is also a great deal of concern, of protection, of people flagging their solidarity. And that evaporated very, very quickly in Nazi Germany. And instead, you actually had not just a government attacking a people, but you had a people attacking, you know, a people, minority groups. And that's a very different and, and significantly scarier dynamic. I wanted to go through sort of each of these because in the first part of the essay, you, you write about Hitler coming to power in 1933, that it was an overwhelming majority and that it was transforming the democracy to a dictatorship. Um, 
with most Germans supporting this. This this right off the bat is significantly different than the Trump administration. So in the United States, you have maybe 55 to 60 percent of people even participating in elections. If you take the total number of people over the age of 18, it's it's around 50 percent of eligible age voting Americans participate in the election. And then even out of that, the majority supported Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump. You only have so I mean, in the in the end, you have maybe 23 and a half to 24 percent of the total voting age population in the United States that actually cast a vote for Donald Trump in the last election. Right. So it's you know, it is also the case that um, of the various fascist parties, the Nazis get more votes than the others do. But they also never actually had a majority in a free election. Um, but that was never surprising because this was uh, this is a kind of electoral system where no one ever required majorities. It was about building a coalition. And so in the whole Weimar Republic, there was never a party that achieved by itself a majority. Um, and in fact, that the Nazi uh, voting in the summer, pro-Nazi voting in the summer of 1932 was the second highest uh, voting tally any single party had ever gotten in the whole Weimar Republic. So their voting levels are really high. What I think happens, though, is that, and I say I think because historians necessarily have to speculate a little bit because after certainly after March 33, there is nothing like a free election again. Um, so we have to speculate, as did W.E.B. Du Bois, about the level of support. And I certainly side with those historians who think that because um, he was able to beat down the very, very high unemployment rate um, and because uh, Germany basically snubbed its nose at, at, at the uh, the, the victorious powers in in World War One rebuilt the army in a, in a in a series of other such things. I think his popularity likely went up, um, and I think it's I think that Du Bois overestimated with ninety percent, but but I think that I, I think that there would be many credible historians who would say, yeah, forty to fifty percent. I can imagine that fifty percent, maybe more. I can also imagine that. Um, and then there's also the difference of whether you support someone and like them, see them as your leader, and whether when given a choice to vote back your Catholic member that your family always voted for, you might still vote for the Catholic. And I think that there are, for example, a lot of Catholics. You know, Germany was two-thirds Protestant, one-third Catholic. I think there are a lot of Catholics who supported Hitler in those years. But if given the choice, they might have voted for the candidate that their families always did. So I would put that support as pretty high in the 1930s and pretty high indeed until about 41, until the war starts going really sour actually in 43. Um, what did the process look like? Because you mentioned trade unions, schools and churches. What did the process look like for them to sort of be brought into this this national right, project? Right. What, what did that... So this, what, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question because this is something I, in that short article, I wasn't able to go into. Sure. But what happens here is that there are some people in the regime, uh, I'm sorry, in the organization that are pro-regime. And those people are, in a way, supported by 
the regime itself. It would be like if your boss were a Nazi and he would then support the other co-workers who are Nazis. And if you were, you know, opened your mouth too much, you would be purged of your position. And so that's what's going on in the churches, the unions. Uh, many of them rename themselves to uh, make it appear, and in fact, it was a de facto situation to support the regime. And again, this too is something that's not here, right? We don't have, to be sure, I'm sure there are some organizations out there that have done this. But when we look at the landscape of civil society in the United States, that's not what we're seeing. Yeah, no, we're seeing universities, as you mentioned in the in the essay, universities, speaking as a military veteran, I've been happy to see uh, members of the military, particularly upper echelon generals and higher brass, speak out about the administration. This seems to be a fundamental difference. Yes, and it's you know it's it's interesting. I there were um, you know I this was posted in various places and also some social media that I have access to, so I could follow the conversations. And there were some conversations of military people um, and some very much supporting the argument and others not so much but this is um this is still an open society this is still and even within the military where there's there's a debate about this and there are people on both sides of that and again that wasn't really the case um and the racial element within the military in the united states seems to be significantly different as well in other words we served with the disproportionate number of black and latino um, veterans and well, Marines, I was in the Marine Corps and I can't imagine, I mean, many of whom of course end up in, in significant positions of power and any kind of a political project in the United States that revolves or has this like strong ethnic racial element to it. I, I, I just don't see how that would be supported by significant, uh, sectors of the U S military. Yes, I, I agree with you. I mean, the, uh the armed forces are one of the most uh, integrated institutions in the United States, as far as I can see. And this means that it's not easily co-optable by politics that target uh, racial minorities who are our generals, colonels, and soldiers. So mm -hmm. I, I think that, I think that the, um, the diverse nature of our armed forces is one of the real solid and strong and important aspects of our civil society. And that's, again, so different from uh, Nazi Germany in the 1930s. That's a great point. It's also probably a point that could be made about the police forces in many uh, major metropolitan areas in the U.S. too. I mean, we would be in an even worse situation if these police forces were uh, just, you know, solely white. That's correct. Um, That's correct. This if is. Add, oh, go I ahead. One last thing, since to, to, on the military question, um, as it turns out, uh, the military in the long run in Nazi Germany does become one of the centers of real resistance, um, and so, and that is also because it within it, it had also these very important independent traditions, it, like the tradition of the Prussian aristocracy, um, which didn't, em, not everyone in that tradition embraced Hitler fully. And in the end, it's that tradition, that separate power base 
that's where the assassination attempts uh, happened. Uh, that's, that's the milieu from where this happened. So the question of where the military is in um, dictatorships or fascism, however you want to call it, I think it's one of the great and central questions. And it would be good if we spent more time on it here as well. I, I completely agree. And I, on a positive note, what I've seen shift, I got a, I was in the United States Marine Corps from 2002 to 2006. And when I got out of the military, uh, the attitude in the military, reflected by opinion polls, not just my anecdotal experiences, but reflected by the opinion polls, was quite conservative, sympathetic toward neoconservative policies. During the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders received more donations from active duty military personnel than every other Democratic candidate combined. Um, and the, the opinion poll now uh, show that Biden has a pretty significant lead among active duty military personnel over Trump, which is also significant because the polls show that, of course, I've been opposed to the war since the second time I went, um, the second deployment I went to, to Iraq. And the polls also show that a significant number, a majority uh, of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans think that both the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, were mistakes. Uh, so the, 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 the politics within the U.S. military is always changing. Uh, and yeah. in my opinion, fortunately, it's, it's becoming more and more progressive. This is a little off topic, but I'm interested because of this racial dynamic, this ethnic racial dynamic that we're talking about to sort of prepare for this interview, I went back and I started reading uh, history of fascism, both in Italy and in Germany. Do you think it's important to make a distinction between Italian fascism and, and Nazism? Do you think that that matters? Is this sort of a, is that more of a university thing that people sort of in that world should be worrying about and the rest of us should be like focused on stopping authoritarianism when we see it? Or, or how do you sort of see that? And do you think that one of the, as I've been reading the last couple of days, it seems one of the maybe significant differences between the two is that racial and ethnic component. Yeah. I, so there are a lot of interesting thoughts and questions in, in what you just said to me. So let me back up and say, I, uh, first of all, I am in terms of my expertise, I'm really a German historian. So that's the story I know uh, very, very well. Uh, I would say. Um, and I know the Italian case less well. Uh, but I do think that the racial dynamic is a very central element of it because this this is a the Third Reich is a regime for which the the racial dynamic which centers during uh, up until 1941 centers on expelling the Jews of Germany simply getting them out of a German controlled area. Um, and then ultimately it, it emerges into a genocidal program. Um, but that drives the, that's a driver of the regime in a way that I don't believe is the case in, in Italy. So I do think that that's a fundamental difference. I also think that the levels of brutality and the levels of, well, the, the images of of conquest are significantly larger and 
more ambitious in the German case. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to downplay the Italian side on this. It's also important. Um, the, the image of sort of a fascist Italian empire is, is also important to that regime. But it has huge consequences because the German, uh, the Nazis imagine that the only real place for that is the East. And that means a clash between two gigantic uh, and powerful countries in the Soviet Union and, 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 and Nazi Germany. So it has consequences of, of, of a different, different dimension. There is a debate about this you know, you might say in the ivory tower, or you might say among uh, progressive intellectuals. I think I've, when I look at the reactions to to um, to that article, most of the critical ones, um, and there were a lot of critical ones. Most of the critical critical ones are insisting that what we're looking at is fascism or descent into fascism uh, nevertheless. And there are a whole number of other kinds of fascism. One doesn't always, so runs the argument, have to focus on Nazi Germany. And I say, okay, we could have that discussion again concerning other fascisms. Um, I would say call in a better expert than me. Uh, but I do think that when Americans hear fascism, their go-to place in their mind is Nazi Germany. It's the most notorious case. It's the it's the case with the most uh, damage wrought on the world. And um, that's the case that I wanted to center um, more than had been, in my opinion, in that article. Now, as you're saying what you're saying, I'm thinking to myself, significant differences, you named some of them. We'll, we'll sort of get back to the other two points that you made. I think per, a little more about race as well, but also treatment of mine, but also, I'm sorry, um, the points you make about uh, incarceration, which I think are important. I mean, you you know, the, the incarceration of political dissidents, socialists and communists explicitly. But I'm, as you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself, uh, I don't know if you agree, but I, I would argue and I agree with sort of the progressive left intellectuals that would say that the United States is an empire or at least maintains a military empire. It's different than previous empires, of course, the contours, how it functions, all yeah. the rest. But we're an empire. Trump came to power with this sort of make America great again. So there, so I think the why there's probably such a reaction to articles like this, though I thought, you know, the article made really salient points that others, I think, have skipped over when they just employ the term and have for the last four years. But I'm assuming you also are concerned about where we're headed. I'm, oh, I'm assuming you're terribly concerned about where we're headed, and I'm assuming you're also not just trying to gloss over like, hey, it's okay, you know, if people came away from the article with that, I, I'm assuming that's not how you wanted them to come away from the article, that everything's just going to be okay here. Uh, you make the case at the end that if we don't strengthen our civil and political institutions, uh, which is the, the sort of major distinction between us and, and Nazi Germany, um, yeah. that something worse could could come about. Yeah. i tell you, in the context, and I actually wrote it almost a month before it actually got published. I wrote it. I didn't like it. I put it in the drawer. Then I pulled it out again, sent it to, I don't know if I should say this, the Wall Street Journal. They didn't, weren't interested. Um, uh, and then I was very happy that the Washington Post uh, picked it up. And then even then it, it waited for a few weeks. So I kept having to update <laughs> references in it. Um, but the 
the context in which I wrote it was the um, were these debates that I saw about fascism. But then the other, the context in which I resubmitted it was the was what was going on in Portland. And what worried me about Portland is that we get into a political mode. And by we, I mean people who are worried about our democracy, in which we imagine ourselves as fighting the fascists in the way that the communists did uh, and the socialists did uh, in 1932. Um, it's about a fight out there on the streets, and there's no other way to stop that. And I worried because I think that this is playing into their hands. Um, I think the the I, when when there is violence on the street, uh, people are being beat up, shot. Now a little bit on this side, now a little bit on that side. That's playing directly into the Trump administration's hands because their whole policy is to make this country worse and then come in and say we're saving it. And what is the the best thing for them to make the streets violent? Um, and if we play along because we are enamored in the notion that we're fighting that fight again, I think we lose. Uh, it's, I still worry that that uh, narrative has a certain amount of play in the suburbs of America where we actually have a good chance to win. And so that's the spirit in which I, I wrote it. And the original title, as I mean, it, it it became something else. And you know, when you hand it to a newspaper, <laughs> you don't know what they're going to do to it. Uh, um, but the original title is, or was, um, "Why the United States Now Is Not Like Fascism Then," or not like German fascism then. And all I wanted to say is, this is not the fight, and the reason is because look, we're four years into the regime. These, these things are not at all alike. And so if you have an opponent, I think it makes sense to figure out exactly what that opponent is and what that opponent wants, what that opponent thinks it can do. And to imagine that this is like Adolf Hitler, I think is just the wrong place to start. And if we don't better, and this is why I was so interested in speaking with you, because if we don't, if we don't understand um, your maybe lack of a better term, political enemy, uh, which should then dictate your strategy. I mean, so if you don't understand what you're trying to achieve, which I do think is, an, is a side problem, and I say that as someone who's been knee-deep in progressive organizing since I got out of the Marine Corps with all kinds of different social movements and organizations, right. we often go into these things in a reactionary way. We want to respond. It comes from a good place. We see an injustice. Yeah. We want to yeah. do something oftentimes without a clear vision of what we want. And without that clear vision of what we want, um, it's very hard to then come up with a strategy. You know, so if you, and this, this continues to happen where people jump to tactics uh, before they think about what is the objective, what is the strategy to achieve that objective, and then what are the tactics that would aid that strategy in achieving that objective. It, we sort of do it ass backwards a lot of times. And, and I've been concerned myself. I mean, uh, the co-founder of, of the community space that we're in and this program, uh, Sergio Kochergin, who is the producer behind the 
the soundboard today. His family comes from uh, Ukraine. Uh, he moved here in 1994 after the wall fell, or 1997 after the wall fell, several years after. Um, we met each other in the Marine Corps and have partnered on different political projects since then. He's experienced collapse and violent um, you know, responses to civil society cracking in two different contexts. I mean, well, now three. I mean, one in the fall of the Soviet Union. Again, we saw this in Iraq, whereas people just imagined Iraq to be this sort of Mad Max war zone. When we got there as ignorant, I mean, I'll speak for myself as, say, an ignorant American who grew up in the Midwest with a, you know, sort of bullshit education that I didn't even pay attention to. I showed up in Iraq, imagined that it would just be a gigantic war zone, and I saw modern highways and I saw factories, and I saw hospitals, and I saw, and I started to think to myself, I started to imagine what the civil society looked like, and then over the years, watching it deteriorate from what it was before the invasion, to the invasion, to then 2007, to then remaining in contact with our Iraqi friends, and talking to them in 2011, and 2014, through ISIS, and everything else that's happened, and you can, how quickly, violence can spiral into what could be a, a, a local uh, interaction, you know, a neighbor killing a neighbor that then turns into de- a tribal violence that then turns into intercommunal violence wrapped up with religious ideology, wrapped up with economic concerns. Yeah. I, it, as, as, a, as a combat veteran, um, I'm at this point trying to encourage everyone I know on the left to take a step back to de-escalate. I think yeah. one of my heroes for doing this on an international scale is Norman Finkelstein, who for years made yeah. the argument the Palestinians have the right to defend themselves and they should right. do so. And after watching that take place for 10, 15, 20 years, he finally came out and said, he wrote a book on Gandhi, and he just yeah. said, hey, look, the way forward is nonviolent civil disobedience because I've seen what the other uh, form of resistance has led to for 20 years. We have to try something different. I'm yeah. I'm extremely concerned about that sort of sporadic violence, and I know this is out of your maybe your your uh, expertise, but I'm just kind of interested in what you're thinking about moving forward. And there's always this question. It's like people I think are sitting at home going, "Should I be ready for a, an authoritarian government to take over? Should I be ready for sort of the balkanization of the United States? What is it that I should be preparing for?" I mean, I think people are very they're very, um, you know, shocked and stressed out right now and, and people are confused. And, and I wonder from your understanding of, of that particular period of German history, what do you think is the most important things for us to look out for? What do you think are maybe some of the, uh, you mentioned strengthening these, these civil and, uh, institutions in American society. What for? What do you think that looks like, and and how do you think we can proceed in a decent way, avoiding hopefully you know the excesses of you know political violence and all of the rest? Yeah, well, let me back up and and mention this to address this question of sporadic political and political violence because that also concerns me a great deal. I I think we have to step back and and remember that of the many, many protests that we've seen, the many demonstrations, the vast, vast majority uh, are in fact non, 
violent. Um, and the vast majority of people who participate them go there um, with that intent in mind. As you reach a certain number of these, there will, in almost all cases, um, be people who split off. And, and there will also be people who are sent by the other side to incite that kind of violence. I know that here in Nashville, Tennessee, where I live, um, in one of the first uh, uh, protests, Black Lives Matter protests this summer, there was a, a, a burning down of, the, um, of a part of the courthouse. Well, in the media, everyone assumed that was because of the Black Lives Matter protest, but actually it wasn't at all. It was somebody else, not an African-American, someone who had nothing to do with that. And I don't, I've, I haven't followed the story since, but the person actually ended up setting fire to one of the uh, leaders of the civil rights movement. And so stuff like that is happening and we have to watch that and we have to, you know, report it and we have to get that stuff in the news because people don't really believe that, but it's actually true. Um, I know this happens in, Ger in the German case as well, not just back then, but also now. Um, so I think that that's the one thing to say is that most of them have been peaceful. We have to still, we have to ourselves police that it remains so. So the second, and I think larger question seemed to me, what do, what do we have to watch out for now? Like if in the event, I mean, there are all sorts of possibilities. One possibility is, um, uh, victory for the Democrats and a peaceful uh, change of, of power as it ought to be in a democratic society. I almost can't believe I'm saying this on the air because when is the last time we've even had to think about that, right, in this country? Um, so, so that's obviously one, uh, one possibility. Another, which worries me terribly, is an illegitimate election. Right, that that either through interference or questions about counting or uh, there's any number of things that um, that the Democrats win or looks like they have won, and yet it's not recognized as such. Um, the stuff goes to a newly minted Supreme Court with you, you know you know what I'm saying. So so that's. That's a second uh, concern. And of course, a third concern is, is a second uh, Trump administration, which, um, which feels unbound because it's four years to the uh, next, next election. So in that last scenario, what uh, I think that there are two institutions that are really key and it's justice and the military. So the, the justice, because if we land in a situation where the political opposition or, or some people in political opposition are arrested, put in jail, then we are very quickly in this land you can look, look, authoritarian regimes do this too. So it doesn't really matter to me much what you call it at that point, but that point where it's no longer democracy and where political opponents are being rounded up, 
They do this in South American uh, authoritarian regimes. They did it in fascist regimes. This is a big red flag. It's a it's a tripping point. Um, it's something we just cannot allow this country to um, step over. And if it starts, that's when we need to be on the streets, every last one of us, uh, in in ways that we haven't seen in a long time. That takes that. That also requires us to be quite principled. In other words, if they're going after right-wing polit and nonviolent, let me add that nonviolent right-wing political thinkers, writers, right. media personalities, etc., liberals, right. progressives, leftists have to stand up for that. That's correct. I mean, this That's is correct. very concerning to me. I mean, in this context of Trump, what I've found very concerning from some of my liberal friends is their willingness to throw some of their principles out of the window just to make political points or to go after Trump. And I, I, first of all, that hasn't worked in the short term. And I really think it's dangerous over the long term. That's right. I mean, we really, you're, I, I fully agree with you. It's, it has to be about the principle. Um, the other one, which you probably have much, have thought much more about than I do. Um, but in authoritarian regimes, in fascist regimes, the next big question is, where does the military stand? Um, and the military in the United States uh, swears an oath to the Constitution, uh, not to the office of the president, even though, and this is the complicated part, um, the, uh, the president is the... Um, Commander-in-chief. Commander in chief, the German word was coming into my head, and I didn't want to say that on live on live <laughs> camera. So, um, yes, commander in chief, thank you. And um, so there's a there is within our own uh, constitution and the way we are set up, there is an ambiguity which which concerns me. Yeah. So that's my and again, I would say I'm sure that you have thought about this. Uh, more than I do, but you know, this, it could be that we come to a situation in which there is something like that second possibility, a hung election or an election that is not sufficiently uh, decided to the uh, degree that Trump would like it. Although every news, you know, all everyone else has said, this is the way it is. Uh, and there's a resistance to leaving power. At that point, there is a real question. What does the military do? Yeah. Um, and to whom does the military uh, have its oath? And that has often been the question then in these sorts of regime transitions. And uh, I don't know how to answer that. Well, that's why I mentioned some of the, the data and anecdotal uh, experiences that I've had earlier, because it, it gives me some hope. I mean, I also think if you look at the simple, if you look simply at the power, the personnel power of the U.S. military, in the geographical area of the United States, I've often had a hard time contemplating how exactly uh, the U.S. military would be used to lock down maybe portions of the United States, but the entire United States with 350 million people, uh, maybe a quarter of whom or a third of whom own weapons and multiple weapons. I just, and this is why any of these roads we go down to imagine how this would unfold, it all for me comes back to institutions building a certain level of healthy collectivity, which to me is, you know, now most of the work we did before the, the pandemic is sort of community organizing work. Right. My concern isn't so much that everybody would 
line up under the supreme leader. My concern after knocking on thousands of doors throughout the Midwest is a fragmentation of society. I mean, my concern is that you have, you can knock on one person's door and they think the earth is flat, which worries me that we're sort of in this other like counter enlightenment era, you know, with social media, with right-wing propagandists and conspiracy theorists. It's so wild to go from, you know, if you knocked on file, I tell people all the time, just on my block here where we live in Michigan City, Indiana, you can knock on one door, that person's watching Fox News 24-7. You knock on the next door, that person doesn't watch any news, hates both political parties, doesn't want to talk about it. I mean, it's, and I don't need to go on, but I mean, it's from one house to the next, and I find that so jar. I mean, even when people talk about the geographical regions of the United States, when they say the South, I mean, Atlanta is not the same as southwestern Georgia. I'm sorry, but like even within there, you have urban and rural divides. And in every case, it seems to me that we need to have robust discussions, conversations. I don't even say debates anymore because that, I think, brings an image into people's heads where you just pick each other apart the whole time. I mean, we yeah. need to have some really serious yeah. adult sophisticated conversations and and anything that's pushing us into a different direction i think right now is very very unhelpful right i i i really agree with you and i think that even in that event that i mean in look we we i i still think if i have to put the numbers on it i still think overwhelmingly that the chances are we will have a democratically legitimate election and we will have a winner. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not ready to pick who I feel confident that will be at this point, but I we will have one. And I think that after this election, we will have to come together and figure out how to um, put pieces together again. And because if we have eight years of, well, actually, to be honest, we have had a polarized society before 2016. Right. Uh, 2016 was an expression of the polarization of our society, not, it was an expression and an accelerant at the same time. And so I think we have to get ourselves back to a space where, um, as you say, discussion can happen. People can start to feel like the person down the street who, you know, is either reading the New York Times or watching Fox News, what picture image is not the enemy. Um, and, you know, paradoxically, this was in, this was part of my argument. Paradoxically, this was precisely what makes America now unlike then, because then um, there that level of polarization, there was polarization, but um, what there really was, was a fallout of the middle. And we have that to some extent too, except that the middle all fell to the right um, uh, in, in Germany. And the middle here falls in a very different way. I'm very concerned about uh, when you said that, you know, there was one person who didn't listen to any news and plague on both of your houses. Um, Cause I think that we underestimate that population and oh, yeah. uh, and that population, I believe, can go either way. But more traditionally, that population drifts into the sort of strong leader camp. 
that's been our concern and one of our pieces of advice to Black Lives Matter organizers is that at first, and you could see this in the in the opinion polls in the in the in the immediate week or two following the uprising in Minneapolis, opinion polls were, and to my surprise, were overwhelmingly supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, after yep. two three months of everything else that's happened and the yep. way that it's been spun, and also mistakes that have been made, um, yep. there's a sense. Not only in the polls reflect this, but anecdotally what we hear from people who are those people who kind of are just tuned out is they yeah. say to us, I don't care how we have to get back to normal. Just make this stop. Yeah. So, yeah. and that, that is, that's concerning for sure. Um, that's right. That's right. I had one more question that's it. I wanted to ask you this because I think one of the things people are asking themselves today is when they look back at these historical um, or they use these historical analogies, they're thinking to themselves, at what point or what multiple points could someone have done something to prevent, have prevented this from taking place? Not that there ever was going to be one thing or, yeah. but I, I think as a historian, I'm interested to ask you, because people, let's say someone has come to the conclusion that we live in an empire in the United States and that this is a sort of declining society. They're very worried about this situation. I talk to some people who say, you know, Vince, this is just the inevitable result of an empire. And that's history and there's nothing you can do about it. How much of this is contingent upon what we do or don't do? And I think sometimes, especially here in the United States, there's already that sense of cynicism and nihilism towards our, you know, the, the political process. Some of it I actually think is quite justified living in the Rust Belt and watching how workers have been treated here for the last 30 years. Yeah. A lot of yeah. that cynicism and nihilism is justified. Um, right. I guess I just want you to speak to how important it is for people to feel like they have an active role in shaping history instead of just thinking that they're passive observers and that we're on this trajectory and this is going to, whatever's going to happen is going to happen regardless of what we do or don't do. Or maybe you do feel that way. And in which case, be honest, no. <laughs> I don't mean to put no. words in your mouth. No, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a good question. I certainly do feel like we control our fate, uh, in this regard. Uh, it's harder for me to say, the one thing we need to do is X. And so I, I, I'm, I'm not prescient enough to figure that one out. I wish I were. Um, <laughs> but, but, but what I, what I would say is that it's, I think it's very important to, uh, let, let me back up there. There is a list of books of mine that, that you rattled off, but you, and I don't want to just do this for the plug reason, but um, the one book, my most recent book was not one that you mentioned. And uh, this book is called Germany, a nation in its time before, during, and after nationalism, 1500 to 2000 published with uh, Libright, a division of Norton. This How long year. did that one take you? <laughs> a couple months. <laughs> if, if you ask my editor is too long, but yes, my God, it took me a while. <laughs> in any case, um, one of the things that I find remarkable about the German case is the question of how after nationalism, you know, after a country goes, it exists 
in that state of extreme nationalism, we're getting there. I mean, America is a, United States of America is a very nationalist country compared to other European countries. Um, I don't know. I can't say compared to China, but the places that I know um, that that is is true. But one of the things that's very interesting is how you leave that headspace and yet can still say, um, I love my country. I like I love my flag. I think um, these are this is what, who I stand for. Own the nation, as it were, um, without the nationalism. And, and I think that this, the United States, is going to have to face this one because it is a declining empire. You know, your friends who say this are right. Our standing in the world has declined significantly since Trump, but it's not just about that, right? It's about these other big structural problems, or, or not even problems, but issues. It's after the Cold War, there isn't just there aren't just two centers of power. There are multiple centers of power. And then, you know, even though you have a very large military, it doesn't mean that you just get your way all the time. So the question is how to change our society um, in that place where we're not always the best um, and yet really own what we are. And, you know, this is a little bit the transition from warfare state to welfare state. Now, in American ears, welfare doesn't have a good ring. But, you know, this the idea of welfare was put in World War II against warfare. Warfare state is where all your society's resources go into the act of aggression, of making war. Um, and welfare state is, is in, you know, where your society puts the lion's share of its resources into the well-being of its citizens. Now that doesn't mean, and one of the unfortunate, you know, rhetorical ploys of uh, Black Lives Matter was to defund the police. Um, you know, I think one should demilitarize the police. I think one should let the military do the military and the police police. Um, but I, you know, no one, I think you will get nowhere with an idea that you want to defund the police. I think yeah. you 23% in the latest Gallup poll. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, it's, it's dangerous. We have to step up and say, no, 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 that was just a heat of the moment yeah. rallying cry, which I can also understand. Yep. I, um, so we have to, but we, for that, we have to get out there and say, this is what we stand for. And I hate to say it, but, well, no, I don't hate to say it. It has to be put in patriotic terms to some extent. Yeah. And this also separates me from some of the critics of critics of my position also in this article uh, on the left. I think we have to figure out a way to um, get that ground back. Yeah. No, we do. And you sound... I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to them because I would argue that the people who are on the ground doing organizing work in unions, schools, universities, tenants, organizations, communities, I think they would agree with you 100%. I mean, if you don't tie this to some kind of a national identity, a national project that's different than the one the right is offering, um, and simply trumping out you know, symbols from uh, 
you know, old European uh, socialist and communist thinkers is not going to get, I mean, it's cool for graduate students, you know, like graduate students and people I know at universities, small percentage, they're into that kind of stuff, but most people can't identify with it. And one of the reasons why we spent so much time working on the Bernie Sanders campaign here in places like Indiana and throughout the Rust Belt is because we've seen the devastation of not only neoliberal economic policies, but also what the war has done to these communities. You know, everything post 9-11 from the economy to the economic collapse in 2008 to the war on terror, um, you know, it's, it's all sort of led to this point now here. And I still argue, I don't think it's the only one. So that's where I disagree with my Marxist friends. I don't think that it's the only force, nor do I think it's always the primary driving force. <clears throat> but I'll say as someone who lives in the Rust Belt, if we don't deal with some of these underlying structural economic issues... I don't care what kind of sort of nice civic politics you offer people. We're going to continue to be in a very rough place trying to get people to speak to each other in a civil way if they can't even afford to pay for their overpriced apartment that they're being gentrified out of anyway. I mean, I don't want to get too far into it, but, you know, where we live, the economic situation is so dire um, that this is why we thought that, you know, that campaign and those kind of projects, less for us about him and more about what that campaign stood for. Um yeah, but in any case, Helmet, I really appreciated this and I really enjoyed speaking with you. This was this was great. And I'm I'm gonna order your latest book. Serge and I will read it and then maybe we can have you on next year. We'll talk about it. After the election, we can get your thoughts and talk about the book and I'd love to do that. I also had a great time talking with okay, you. Okay, great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right, we'll speak soon. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye, Helmet. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia.org. Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.